Horseshoe crabs. Yes, I said horseshoe crabs. What do they have to do with human health and the environment? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. There's not going to be a war by Russia to conquer the United States. There's not going to be a war by China to conquer the United States. No country is going to conquer the United States. The United States is destroying itself because of the size of its military. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy, and uh, that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dig dignity of man. I feel pretty confident in guessing that everybody listening to this podcast has never for once thought about horseshoe crabs. <laughs> but our guest today has written an entire book about horseshoe crabs. I've seen them. I think they're pretty cool. They look remarkably prehistoric, and they are not the crabs we eat. But until being informed of this new book, Crab Wars, A Tale of Horseshoe Crabs, Ecology, and Human Health, I had not a clue as to their importance to things like the COVID vaccines and human health. And unfortunately, a law of capitalism applies to horseshoe crabs. The demand is huge and the supply is dwindling to a danger point. Why care about horseshoe crabs? Well, you'll find a reason as you listen. Our guest author, uh, Bill Sargent, uh, wrote a, a new book called uh, Crab Wars, A Tale of Horseshoe Crabs, Ecology and Human Health. He's a consultant for NOVA Science Series and the author of 27 books about science and the environment, including Shallow Waters, A Year on Cape Cod's Pleasant Bay, which won the Winship Penn New England Award, Storm Surge, A Coastal Village Battles the Rising Atlantic, and Terror by Error, The COVID Chronicles, which was the first book to investigate whether COVID came about because of a lab accident. Formerly director of the Baltimore Aquarium and a research assistant at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, he's taught at the Briarwood Center for Marine Biology and at Harvard University. Well, thanks so much for being with us uh, on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you very much. It's it's wonderful to be here, um, and it's it's particularly uh, it's very nice to be talking to somebody from New Hampshire uh, because you're familiar with horseshoe crabs. Oh yeah. And actually, if you go uh, just right around the corner from Portsmouth to uh, Great Bay, yes, that's one of the most significant, uh, largest northern uh, population of horseshoe crabs on the on the east coast. And if you go there. Uh, under the full moon or the new moon in April, May, June, and sometimes a little bit in July, there'll be dozens and dozens of horseshoe crabs, sometimes as, as many as hundreds of horseshoe crabs. They're up on the beach laying their eggs. Uh, it, it's very, it gives you sort of a sense of creation because this has been going on for 450 million years. So way before there were birds, fish, dinosaurs, all the animals that were that were familiar with, they were coming up on land, and the only thing on land were little mosses and ferns and some dragonflies with about a three foot long wingspan. And and now each one of those horseshoe crabs, if you keep it alive and use it for lysate, 
is worth $1,500. If you chop them up and use them for bait, they're worth about 30 cents a pound. Oh, uh, but but what, we're, what we're doing, particularly in the, in the mid-Atlantic states, is they have been chopping them up and using them for bait for oh, wow. eels and conchs and, and various things like that. Um, but now we're, we're, we're starting to tighten the regulations uh, so that we'll only be using them for, uh, uh, for the, for lysate. Yes. And, uh, I had, I will confess, never heard of lysate before. And if, if you haven't seen a horseshoe crab, think about, you know, an early version of a tank in World War One. They, they sort of look like that. They're very, it's, I can see why they haven't changed in all these millions of years because it's pretty well protected. It's this big, big shell. Well, unless one is in deep denial about the ever more dangerous effects of over-harvesting natural resources in these days of increased environmental consciousness and concern, we may be aware of dwindling corals and other threats to the stability of our oceans, but the horseshoe crab... Why is the status of the horseshoe crab something that ought to be on our radar? And I guess this leads right into the uh, lysate. What the heck is lysate, and uh, why is it important, something that ought to be on our radar? Yeah. Well, everybody who's listening to us, uh, lives have been protected by horseshoe crab blood. Whenever anything's going to come in contact with a human blood system, whether it's a syringe or a vaccine or an antibody test, uh, or a pacemaker, anything like that has to be tested to make sure that it's free of bacteria. And the way they do that is with the horseshoe crab test. And so it's, it's the most uh, commonly used medical procedure uh, in the world that's all based on a single species of wild animal. And that animal has been declining up and down the East Coast both because they're used for bait and, and because they're used for the lysate. Uh, theoretically, you should be able to, you know, go out, catch the crabs, bring them into the lab, bleed them, and then return them back to the wild with no mortality. Uh-huh. But often industrial conditions, the trucks don't show up, the, the crabs are left out in the sun, and you'll have very high mortality. So drawing their Blood, I can't, I have no idea how one draws blood from a horseshoe <laughs> crab. Uh, d- it doesn't necessarily kill the crab. So, and, and I wonder, how did anybody ever figure out that horseshoe crab blood could be so useful? Yeah, well, uh, let's see, the first part of your question, how do you bleed a horseshoe crab? Uh, if, you, if you look at a horseshoe crab, they fold. Uh, and in the middle yes. of that fold, there's a little sort of a hinge uh, and so what they do is they put them in a wooden rack and then they and then they, uh, you know, put a, a syringe in that um, in the in the leathery uh, uh, little uh, tissue of the of the fold. Uh, and then they let the blood flow out. And it's a bright blue copper based blood. Ah, um, blue blood. Like, yeah, it's blue blood. And it's it's a. It's a cobalt blue. It's actually quite beautiful. Wow. And as soon as it comes in contact uh, with the air or with gram-negative bacteria, uh, then it, it, you know, it turns this cobalt blue. Um, and so that's basically the, the, uh, the test itself. What they do is they, they take the blood, they dry it, they make what's called limulus amoebocyte lysate, and then they simply add water to that. And then, then all the vaccines that we've been using for COVID – 
and all of the antibody tests all had to be tested to make sure they were free of bacteria. And the way they were doing this was with the, with the horseshoe crab test. And I forget the second part of your question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's amazing that anybody discovered that. So this this lysate uh, is in the the crab, in the blood of the horseshoe crab, and how important is that? Uh, what what's the role of the lysate in the fight against COVID? Well, it's this it's the test for for uh, gram negative bacteria, and we've been using that. Formerly, um, the companies that made vaccines would have huge colonies of live rabbits, and all the vaccines had to be, they would inject them, uh, the vaccine into a rabbit, and if the rabbit kicked over and died, they knew that it was contaminated with, uh, with, with bacteria. Um, and it was very costly, you know, you had, had to have these colonies of, you know, hundreds and sometimes thousands and thousands of rabbits. Yeah. Uh, so... After the swine flu epidemic in 1976, uh, they they tested uh, the two tests, both the, the rabbit test and the horseshoe crab test, and they found out that the horseshoe crab test was much easier to use, it was much much more sensitive and much less expensive. So that the Food and Drug Administration accepted that as the as the standard test for um, for bacteria. Yeah. A similar kind of thing came up. Um, with COVID, uh, and you'll you'll remember that you know the FDA has had a huge role in that. Uh, they basically made the decision um, that w- that we would continue to use uh, limulus lysate. We would continue to use the horseshoe crab blood as opposed to using this new sort of razzle dazzle gene splicing to make an artificial form mm. uh, of, of lysate, and this would protect the crabs, but it so far we don't um, we don't know that as it is as effective and as sensitive uh, as the as the whole animal uh, test. Um, so they decided to you know stick with the lysate, and and I you know I I don't. I don't agree with the Food and Drug Administration very often, but I, I agree with them there. Hmm. I think you didn't want to, you know, change, jump, switch horses in midstream um, because you had 30 years of experience with the lysate and you knew that it was very effective. Um, but they've only got a couple, you know, a couple years worth of trials uh, with the artificial one. So I think eventually uh, we will adopt that. Um, and uh, and that will that will both protect the horseshoe crabs and it will also protect a number of endangered shorebirds uh, that are dependent on horseshoe crab eggs for their uh, for their migrations. Uh, interesting. Yeah, it all uh, mixes in as a lot of us have learned through the decades. And it, it, certainly multinational pharmaceutical conglomerates are both appreciated for having the capital to do life-saving research and development, but... There's also the concern about unintended consequences of self-regulating industries having great control over the Earth's limited natural resources. And the way you describe the, the crabs, you know, piling up to do their uh, mating ritual, how it sounds, I can picture a lot of horseshoe crabs. How close are the crabs to becoming endangered? And, and where do they fit into the ecological balance? You described a little bit of that. Uh, well, they're they're 
they're really crucial to um, to areas like Great Bay and Pleasant Bay, all the all the estuaries up and down the East Coast, um, because they, you know, they eat a lot of detritus. They eat a lot of uh, you know worms and various things like that. Very few animals actually uh, eat the horseshoe crabs themselves. Lots, <laughs> lots and lots. Of, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've I've been asked uh, sometimes. You know, you you get asked to give recipes uh, for you know various cookbooks, and and I've included one for horseshoe crab chowder. And when you go down the list of ingredients until you get to a you know a pound of crow meat, then I think people realize that they've been had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you look at a horseshoe crab, forget about it. You can't eat that. Right. Anyway, yeah. sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so they're very, very important uh, to the environment, and um, uh, and you know, but they're particularly important to species like red knots. Uh, and this is a species um, that migrates from Tierra del Fuego in the tip of South America all the way up to the Arctic Circle. Oh my. And all of them, eighty percent of all the red knots in the world are on the on the uh, the beaches of Delaware Bay. Uh, when the horseshoe crabs are mating and they eat over 40 tons of horseshoe crab eggs and that gives them the fuel to make the rest of their migration up to the arctic circle uh, and they can start laying their eggs well good for them i'll, I'll choose something else uh, to keep me uh, going <laughs> <laughs> uh, for those who yeah. may have just tuned in bert cohen here the show is keeping democracy alive and we're actually talking about horseshoe crabs uh, with uh, the william Sargent, author of a new book Crab Wars, A Tale of Horseshoe Crabs, Ecology, and Human Health. And you mentioned how, why is the horseshoe crab blood so profitable? And, you know, is it hard? Well, I guess it's not that hard to get it once you know how to do that and find that hinge on the, on the crab, which is pretty easy to do. But how profitable is it for these uh, pharmaceutical companies? Uh, it's it's extremely profitable, um, and and yes, it is. Uh, it, you know, it's very easy to get the blood. Uh, then there's a certain amount of of uh, sort of biochemical rigmarole that has to go on to make the lysate. Uh, you have to you have to spin out the the cells, uh, and um, and that causes the cells to lyse, uh, which means they break open. Um, so you get the, the limulus, it's called limulus amoebocyte lysate. Limulus comes from limulus polyphemus, which is the, which is the Latin name of the crab. Um, uh, and the amoebocytes are the cells. They have a, you know, we have about 26 uh, different cells that are all part of our, our antibody system. Horseshoe crabs have a single what's called an amoebocyte cell, which is like an amoeba. And it, it, if you get a, if, if you get a, if the, if the horseshoe crab gets a wound, the amoebocyte cells will migrate to the area and coagulate hmm. and keep the infection out. So it's a very primitive. It was the first immune system in the animal kingdom, uh, and it's very primitive, but it's, but it's worked for 450 million years. So what what is the, the the threat to the crabs? I mean, over we've heard of overfishing, and you know it's kind of frightening out there, you know, with all the plastics in the ocean and overfishing in general. So how close are these crabs to becoming endangered? 
Um, well, they're, they, they are declining uh, up and down the East Coast. There's a few areas where they're actually holding their own or increasing. And those are the areas, uh, for instance, South Carolina has passed the regulation that horseshoe crabs can only be used for lysate, so yeah. they can no longer be used for bait. Uh, and I think this should be adapted by all of the, all of the uh, East Coast uh, states. Uh-huh. And I used to, you know, mention this on, on radio shows, and, uh, and I'd get, you know, I expected to get all kinds of pushback from fishermen, uh, and actually, they called in and they said, no, it's not a problem. Uh, we can use spider spider crabs or, or other things for bait, uh, and they work just as well. Um, so I think I think that would that would uh, have a sig- you know significant impact on on uh, protecting the crabs. So, you know, and I've wondered, you know, here in Portsmouth and along the East Coast, uh, it's been tough for, for local fishermen to have. You know, it's it's tough work anyway, but to have regulations, yeah. uh, they don't like the regulations necessarily, but, you know, most of them recognize, hey, we got to have fish in the future. So they're not, it's not a threat to the uh, uh, enterprise of the local fishermen. They're not affected by regulations surrounding horseshoe crabs adversely? Um, no, I think, uh, and you know, so far the, the regulations have been, uh, you know, fairly mild or non-existent. Um, what, what some states are starting to do, uh, in some areas, and I think this makes a lot of sense is, uh, they don't allow people to collect the crabs when they're cr- coming up to lay their eggs, uh, which kind of seems obvious actually. Um, but what that, what that does is uh, if you if you're collecting the crabs uh, while they're while they're laying the eggs, what you do is you take those females out of the breeding population. Um, so you might not notice that the numbers of adult crabs is declining, uh, but you will notice that the the number of immature crabs absolutely plummets. Um, we there was a uh, court case. It was a federal court case in 2000 in Pleasant Bay, which is where I grew up and have studied horseshoe crabs for the past, I'm not going to tell you how many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember as a kid, uh, you would look along the edge of the of the shore and you'd see hundreds and hundreds of, of little uh, horseshoe crab shells. They shed, they shed their shell every year. And these were all about the size of a quarter. Um, and But then I started noticing right you know, in the late 1900s, you just didn't see any of these. There were plenty of large crabs in the bay, so nobody was concerned about the about the population of adult crabs, and nobody really noticed that the that the uh, that the, there weren't any small crabs. Uh, and I finally I got together with a with a friend of mine, George Buckley, who teaches at Harvard, and he brought his students down. And what we decided to do is we collected all the shells along a you know a hundred meter uh, transect. And whereas before uh, you'd have hundreds and hundreds of crabs, we were only finding two or three crabs. Hmm. And um, and so the, the the court case went ahead. And basically what was happening is the uh, people were collecting the crabs in the Cape Cod National Seashore, which is actually illegal because you're not allowed to make a, a profit from uh, animals that you that you catch in a uh, in a, in a national seashore. Uh, but nobody knew this was happening for about 20 years. Uh, as a matter of fact, when it when it 
came out that it was happening, um, the the uh, the head of the of the seashore said, "Well, you know, what are we going to do? Chase them with our, our you know our chase canoes?" Um, but um, so what they did is they won the case. They stopped people from collecting the horseshoe crabs in the shallow waters of the of the uh, Cape Cod National Seashore. Uh, and then the horseshoe crabs came back and, you know, far faster than, than we expected the following year. And the year after that, you, you returned to having, you know, hundreds of horseshoe crab shells, uh, along the shore again. So they bounced back, uh, incredibly quickly. And that of course is, you know, that's the, the big lesson, um, particularly with marine animals that if you give them half a break, they will jump back incredibly, um, I, you, you've probably, uh, been hearing about the, um, whales that are feeding right offshore in Northern Massachusetts and, and, uh, and off Hampton beach and in, in, uh, along the New Hampshire coast yeah. and they're feeding on the Menhaden. Um, and Menhaden had been in decline not too many years ago. And then they passed some more stringent regulations and they've bounced back. So now there's just, you know, huge schools of them. Uh, and you'll see the, you know, the whales will be feeding on them and seals and great white sharks and bass and bluefish. And everybody's out there, you know, in the buffet. Well, that that's good to hear that, uh, you know, because sometimes, I mean, lots of these things you're talking about, I don't have a clue, but uh, that that we can bring these things back once, you know, if, if you do it, if you stop you know, bet you know ridiculous harvesting and and you know overfishing yeah. and things like that because uh, yeah. you know we worry. I, I like to eat fish and I'd like to have a lot of fish in the ocean for the future. So maybe yeah. there's a way around that. And in yeah. in some ways, your book is kind of a sobering reflection on the unintended consequences of scientific progress. Did you mean for it to be that? Uh, well, yes, it is sort of a cautionary tale, uh, and it, it's kind of interesting because, um, you know, in the book, I, I, I look at some of the, there were a lot of corners that were cut, uh, and, um, uh, you know, I think when you get a combination of, uh, you know, advanced biotech uh, research plus capitalism uh and you have to make money um people will will cut corners uh and and that's what we found and mistakes will be made um this it it sort of prepared me um for you know when covid came out i had actually just finished a a a manuscript about a um uh a book about tick-borne diseases and and some of the accidents in research that could have led to that and as soon as COVID came out, I realized, wow, that could be the that, that could be the same uh, the same cause, and um, and it, I was really prepared to see that because of of doing the research on the on the horseshoe crab industry. So those of us who are smart enough to to take the uh, vaccinations, uh, which hopefully everybody listening has, I can't imagine not, should be. I don't know if we should go out and thank a horseshoe crab, but it has been uh, very helpful indeed. And whoever thought about that. So what can the average 
person do? I mean, how much of a, of a crisis might this be? And, uh, you know, the, the book is Crab Wars, A Tale of Horseshoe Crabs, Ecology and Human Health. What should the average non-scientific uh, person uh, be doing? What can be done on this? Well, I think of always, you know, the first thing is education. So, uh, you know, learning about learning about the issues and supporting legislation like uh, only using the horseshoe crabs for for lysate uh, would would be very important. Uh, the other thing that you can do is, um, you know, often when the horseshoe crabs are mating, uh, they'll end up flip, being flipped over on their back um, and then they're vulnerable. Um, you know, then we'll, seagulls can attack them and uh, then they will dry out. So you simply, if you just flip them over and, uh, and let them release back into the, into the water, uh, you've, saved, uh, you've saved a $1,500 uh, uh, animal. Huh. And I, I feel like I've seen uh, the same shape that horseshoe crabs are in, in fossils. You know, it, it, it's like a, a, a really primordial uh, shape that that is there. So the way you're talking about is uh, things people can do at the state level, right? I mean, is that is that not where it should be? And I wonder if there's model legislation that you can point people to or places that have done it. Well, um, South Carolina, uh, and they they did this uh, quite early on uh, when the when the industry was just getting started up in the 70s and 80s. And they they passed legislation making it uh, that you could only use the horseshoe crabs for lysate. Um, you know, smaller areas, uh, we passed the same sort of thing for uh, Pleasant Bay uh, on Cape Cod, uh, where I grew up. And um, so there are, there are uh, similar things like that. Well, great. Uh, if you're interested, uh, dear listener, the book is Crab Wars, A Tale of Horseshoe Crabs, Ecology and Human Health. And we've been talking to author William Sargent. Thank you so much for being with us. And uh, learning is really a lot of fun, I must say. Thank you. Thank you very much. And on the subject of the health of the oceans, this is a little tune called Surf's Up, written by Brian Wilson, but guitar by Jeff Beck.
talk about radical shifts, we're going to move from horseshoe crabs to what happens next between the U.S. and China? What opportunities are there and what pitfalls? As we move from the problems of Trump to the opportunities of Biden, among the incredible number of urgent items on his plate is China. Are there any good options for the new president? Can we focus on human rights while improving trade relations with China? What policies might serve us and what might cause them to react aggressively? What is the risk of Biden looking like we're being pushed around by Beijing? With us today to discuss President Biden's China conundrum is Michael Clare, the five college professor emeritus of peace and world security studies at Hampshire College and a senior visiting fellow at the Arms Control Association. Michael Clare is the author of 15 books, the latest of which is All Hell Breaking Loose, The Pentagon's Perspective on Climate Change. And he writes regularly for Tom Dispatch and The Nation. Well, thanks for being with us, Michael. And you write that China is in a more powerful position than ever to dictate the rules of the world economy and that on so many fronts, dealing with China poses an enormous conundrum for America's new leadership team. Why is that? And how severe is the challenge of managing U.S. relations with China? Here we are at the start of a new administration that wants to, you know, change everything about American policy. And we face a foreign rival, China, that is more powerful than ever and uh, poses uh, challenges on multiple fronts for the United States, mm -hmm. economically, militarily, diplomatically, technologically. I mean, let's face it, China is a rising power, and we haven't faced a challenger like this throughout American history. The Soviet Union was a powerful military threat, no question about it, and Russia retains the nuclear weapons mm -hmm. from the Soviet era. But China has not only military might, but also economic and technological might that the Soviet Union and Russia do not possess. So this is a unprecedented challenge for the United States. Oh, great. Just what a new president wants to hear. The imperial struggle for control of the far western Pacific has really been with us since the late 19th century. As you point out, the strategically important waterways of the western Pacific, such as the East and South China Seas, constitute China's very front door. So rightfully belong under Chinese control for the United States, they represent the far western edge of its security zone and so cannot be surrendered to Beijing. From this strategic impasse springs the very real possibility of minor incidents escalating into World War III. And you note that not since Japan's imperial expansion in the 1930s and early 40s has Washington faced such a formidable foe in that part of the world. And we all know how that turned out. Might the horse be already out of the barn for Biden? Well, as you put it that way, yes. Uh, and we're talking about today or tomorrow, because the U.S. has deployed forces in these dangerous waterways, has been doing that under the Trump administration, very provocative naval and air maneuvers. 
in the South China Sea and the waters around Taiwan. And it seems that the Biden administration is perpetuating these uh, provocative naval and air maneuvers at this moment. Uh, right now, the Theodore Roosevelt strike carrier strike group is in the South China Sea, mm. an area claimed by China. At the same time, China is trying to send a signal to Biden uh, that it, it, it intends to act tough in this area by sending its own forces into the South China Sea and sending air and naval forces around Taiwan. So you have a very dangerous mix at this very moment. So it's not just COVID that could kill us. <laughs> the Department of Defense has shifted away from terrorism being the main perceived threat to seeing long-term economic competition as the rising threat. And you point out that the entire military establishment has been substantially refocused and re-engineered from acting as a counter-terror and counter-insurgency force into one armed, equipped, and focused on fighting the Chinese and Russian militaries. If so, what does that box uh, Biden in? It seems to be that the uh, current defense leadership uh, is not backing away from that. Uh, Lloyd, General Lloyd Austin, who was sworn in as Secretary of Defense just a few days ago, has testified that he will continue along the path set by the Trump administration under its national security policy of uh, viewing China as America's foremost threat to national security and in taking whatever military means are necessary to counter the Chinese threat. So there seems to be a continuation of the Trump policy under Biden. Wow, that's that's very concerning. And I find it interesting that economic competition is the rising threat, whereas the the terrorists, you know, from ISIS and Al-Qaeda, various different groups like that, they attacked physically Americans. And that's that's not happening here. How is it that, you know, economic competition is now the biggest threat? That seems sort of surprising. Well, it's not just economic by itself. It's economic technological uh, growth uh, that China presents. Now, when I talk about this, I'm, I'm speaking how this is perceived by policy elites in Washington. I'm not speaking for myself, you understand. Oh, I do. <laughs> yeah, so uh, China's growing economic and technological prowess is viewed as a military threat because they're able to invest more and more money in modernizing their right. armed forces, acquiring new technology, and and building a, a, an armed forces that could challenge the United States. Mm. Uh, also, the economic growth of China is giving China the opportunity to forge new relations with countries throughout Asia and beyond Asia, yes, in Africa, absolutely. in Latin America. Yep. So uh, it's a geopolitical threat. Yeah, geopolitical doesn't always lead to, you know, boom, boom, you know, war and things like that. But uh, oftentimes it does, unfortunately. 
And outgoing Secretary of Defense Mark Esper said he had three main strategic policies regarding China. Quote, the weaponization of advanced technologies, the strengthening of military ties with friendly nations surrounding China. In other words, the goal is to uh, uh, encircle China with hostile U.S.-oriented alliance, sending top-grade weapon systems to Taiwan, strengthening ties to India as well. And uh, Secretary of State nominee Blinken praised Trump's approach, saying, as we look at China, there's no doubt it poses the most significant challenge to U.S. interests. And as you said, uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin got not a lot of reaction when he was speaking to the Senate Armed Services Committee to what he claimed was his number one priority, to better equip U.S. forces to engage in a future war with China. He said, if confirmed, I will focus the department the Department of Defense, on China. What does this say, perhaps, about the power of the military-industrial complex in the face of mounting pressure to cut the bloated defense budget pegged at $705 billion for the current year, uh, excluding off-line items, in order to finance desperately needed investments in healthcare infrastructure, poverty reduction, and climate adaptation. So is this the military-industrial complex saying, hey, we got to find somebody to, you know, some enemy to uh, to keep us in power and keep the money rolling in? Well, you know, if, if I were defense contractors and looking at the Biden list of priorities, he, he said his top priorities are climate change, coronavirus uh, relief, economic relief at home, addressing institutionalized racism in this country, uh, you know, helping out the poor and uh, addressing the economic effects of coronavirus. That's what he said are his top priorities and, and rebuilding America's infrastructure. You don't hear in that list building up the military uh, for going to war with China. So uh, if you follow those that list of priorities, you would think that the natural outcome would be to take funds from the Defense Department and that huge budget of $705 billion for, for 2021 and say, couldn't we use some of that money to rebuild America's uh, falling apart infrastructure and to uh, make sure that everybody gets vaccinated for COVID and to redress some of the economic inequalities in America. Uh, That would be the natural reaction, it seems to me. Or at least, you know, if you see that through the eyes of these defense contractors, they must be thinking that. And and, and so, you know, the natural outcome would be to say, to ring, uh, you know, the alarm bells, China, 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 China. Hmm. I wonder how much power they think they have over Biden. I mean, the, the weapons contractors uh, have been living quite nicely, def- you know, with us defining national security as they would like it in terms of Weapons, weapons, weapons. Uh, but I, I would think national security could be defined a little bit differently, like real national security. But I wonder if the military-industrial complex believes it has as much power over Biden as they've had with most prior presidents. Do you have any sense of that? Well, the truth of the matter is that the that, uh, military-industrial complex 
has very uh, successfully uh, distributed a lot of its production uh, into the districts of Democratic as well as Republican Congress people and senators. Right. It's distributed throughout the United States. So a lot of uh, liberal, so-called right. uh, liberal members of Congress who might support Biden on, on a whole lot of issues also have large defense contractors sure. uh, in their states. Oh, yeah. e even in New England, huh? which is uh, you know, a largely blue area where I live in Massachusetts and mm -hmm. neighboring Rhode Island has major military facilities. Connecticut has huge military facilities. Maine has the biggest naval yes. uh, uh, construction site, Bath Ironworks. So the Congress people in those states are largely beholden yes. to the military industrial complex and, and won't vote against military spending. Yeah, I've seen that all too much. Our former uh, member of Congress, uh, Carol Shea Porter, was pretty liberal, but when it came to funding the uh, Portsmouth Naval Shipyard, which repairs nuclear submarines, oh no, we can't consider uh, retrofitting and you know changing, making new jobs to build, say, high-speed railroad cars uh, out, out of this stuff. No, we just got to go down the line with that. Yeah, it's been frustrating. The uh, the weapons contractors knew what they were doing when they placed their facilities all over the country, including in, uh, obviously, Democratic areas. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about President Biden's China conundrum. Our guest is Professor Michael Clare, who's written about it a lot and who knows defense stuff. And I just saw this in the news very recently. The Biden administration has imposed a temporary freeze on U.S. arms sale to Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates. I'm rather pleased with that, but no doubt that is not going down well with the weapons lobby. Does this add pressure to to China as the target, as you know, the one that has to be uh, in the headlines and in the news? Well, those particular arms sales are uh, on hold because of very successful activism by human rights groups. Yeah. Because in many cases, the weapons that we've been selling to Saudi Arabia have been used to attack, supposedly to, to attack the rebels, the Houthi rebels in Yemen. But we know very well uh, that the Saudis have been bombing indiscriminately uh, and in, in Yemen with many, many civilians being killed, children uh, included. Uh, so human rights groups have successfully mounted a campaign to convince uh, legislators and, and the president to cut off arms sales to Saudi Arabia for that reason. Sure. Uh, so, you know, that's a good thing that's happened. Oh, I think so, yeah. Uh, but I, so I, I, wonder... I, I don't see a direct tie to China there, but plenty of other stuff is going to be uh, come down the line that will be China-oriented. Well, the weapons contractors, if they're not making these, you know, cool things for uh, guidance systems and whatever for the Saudi Arabians, they got to sell their stuff somewhere. So might as well focus on uh, China as a, a way to, to drum up a business. And you talked about human rights. The current government of China is highly authoritarian. Its record on human rights 
is not a good one. They have literal concentration camps for the Uyghurs in Western China, and people who care about human rights are appropriately making some noise about that. And it seems the suppression of civil liberties in Hong Kong is in its early, very frightening stages. We have to do something about this, no? I mean, how, do, how does Biden deal with this stuff? I think that's absolutely true, that uh, what uh, the Xi Jinping regime has been doing with respect to the Uyghurs is utterly reprehensible, and the crackdown on uh, civil liberties in Hong Kong equally so. And I think it's appropriate for the Biden administration to raise this with Chinese leaders and express uh, our outrage over that and uh, to take steps, for example, uh, to punish companies, uh, including American companies, that have contributed to the uh, surveillance and uh, targeting of Uyghurs. It, it, it appears that some American companies, and as, along with Chinese and other companies, have supplied technology, the facial recognition technology used to identify Uyghurs, and uh, mm. targeted them for arrest and incarceration, like you say. So I think it's absolutely appropriate to impose sanctions on those companies and otherwise punish China uh, for those activities. But that doesn't mean uh, that we can't take steps to cooperate with uh. China in other areas like climate change that are essential to our well-being. Have they indicated that they're interested in cooperating with regard to climate change? Because they've apparently been, you know, a uh, big polluter. Are they interested in working with us on that? Any indications? Absolutely. Uh, you know, China is now uh, taking the lead in the international community uh, in talking about taking steps to reduce its its own uh, mm -hmm. ca carbon emissions and to work with other states to do that. Now, mm. how much of this is propaganda right. and how much of it's real has to be tested. Right. Uh, but the only way you could do that is by engaging with them in diplomacy. And that's what John Kerry's job is. Uh, he will be the country's climate envoy. And he has expressed a, a strong desire to meet with Chinese officials on this issue and to press them uh, for more information, but also to find where areas where there could be cooperation between the two countries. Oh, interesting. That's good to hear. Plus, he does have a little bit of experience with uh, at former Secretary of State, and he did quite well with that, I, I thought. Um, and, and since, as you say, Democrats as well as Republicans view China as a potent economic rival that could, in the very near future, overtake the U.S. to become the world's leading economic power. So aren't there options other than aggressive, militarized confrontation that might be more effective tools for the job? And do you think uh, uh, the Biden administration will pick up the right tools here? There certainly are. Of course, there are other options for dealing with a country like China. Uh, there are all kinds of uh, means of engagement during the Obama administration, there was something called uh, strategic 
or economic and security strategic talks. Uh-huh. I'm forgetting the exact title, but there were periodic uh, and, uh, periodic dialogues between senior U.S. officials, the Secretary of the Treasury, the uh, head of the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of State would meet uh-huh. on a regular schedule with their Chinese counterparts, and they set up working groups mm. of Chinese and American officials to look for areas of cooperation, and a lot came from that. There were exchanges, university-to-university exchanges on uh, electric cars, for example, mm. that sort of thing. So this is entirely possible. So sort Invo- of involving civil society as well, not just government, but corporations and uh, universities, think tanks, and the like. So sort of a constructive engagement, as Al Gore used to talk about. And I I wonder about any kind of fear. I know the the right wing has already uh, started saying that, oh, China owns Biden. They're going to, he's going to look like a puppet to, to, uh, to the Chinese, to uh, Xi Jinping. What about (laughs) concern about that? I mean, I guess you can't just blow these right-wingers off, but uh, I wonder how much of a consideration that might be for the Biden administration. I'm sure they've given a lot of thought. Uh, But, you know, after all, uh, it was Donald Trump who talked about Xi Jinping as his friend. Uh, Oh, true. you, you, you haven't heard language like that from the Biden administration. They, they see China appropriately as a, as a rival, a competitor, which it is. Yeah. But you, you, you can't wish a competitor away. You have right. to engage with rivals and competitors, and you want to do it in a way that doesn't result in World War III, which is the other possible outcome. Well, that would be quicker than COVID. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> but uh, uh, we've already lost 400 and some thousand lives here in America. Anyway, the, the 45th president imposed a series of tariffs on uh, what, hundreds of billions of dollars of Chinese imports. I wonder how that has worked out. Uh, what do you know about that? I, I really, I mean, has that helped American manufacturers and, and farms or, or hurt us? You know, the, 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 the final word isn't in on that. Uh-huh. My understanding uh, from reading the business pages of the media is, is that uh, some, some companies benefited, some steel manufacturers in this country benefited, but probably more areas of the economy suffered than benefited. Yeah. Certainly uh, farmers suffered uh, considerably. And a lot of other companies uh, th- that rely on Chinese imports uh, Im- has suffered a lot. And American consumers certainly suffered yeah. because of higher prices. So on balance, it probably hurt American consumers more than achieved any benefits. Well, a lot of us are impressed with uh, President Biden more so than we expected to be, quite frankly. I wonder, you know, he's doing so many, so many good things, I think. I wonder about any kind of break between the good things he's doing domestically and potential problems with foreign policies. I wonder about how 
appropriate would be to be optimistic with regard to uh, how Biden is going to deal with China? Or is it really, uh, as you say, a big conundrum for him? Well, I, I, I'm pessimistic on this front. Uh-huh. Uh, I worry that uh, because he wants to make progress on the domestic front, he's going to allow uh, hawks, uh-huh. the China hawks, mm-hmm. to have their way with China uh, to cover his rear, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and that's, that's why I and some colleagues have formed a new organization called the Committee for a Sane U.S.-China Policy. Uh-huh. And uh, your listeners can visit our website, Saying U.S. China Policy, to see w- how we view this issue, and uh, and t- we propose sensible, peaceful, mutually beneficial solutions to some of the questions you're raising, because uh, we do worry that Biden is going to allow. China policy to slip out of his fingers and mm. turn around and stab him in the back. Mm. The website, so if people just Google sane U.S. China policy, that'll take them there? Yep. Thank you so much, Michael. Let's hope, uh, I'm I'm impressed by Biden so far, and uh, let's hope enough, a lot of pressure is going to be needed, and you can't fix everything right away. I know Americans are like, we want instant solutions to everything, but it doesn't work like that. And uh, if we keep up some pressure and and let him know that uh, people care about uh, avoiding World War III, uh, we can do that. Again, the uh, sane U.S.-China policy. Michael, ORG. ORG. Yes. Thank yeah. you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. We'll be in touch again, I'm sure. Uh, it was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. And now a little bit of current Chinese rock and roll.
跳过无人的星球。